This morning we return to our study in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in our studies in the book of Philippians over the past months, we've been considering Paul's instructions to us concerning the Christian life. At every turn in the opening of his letter, Paul expresses confidence in the salvation of his dear friends at Philippi, as well as confidence in their understanding of the gospel. And so rather than an evangelistic letter or a full-blown defense of the gospel, a key theme in the book of Philippians has been the doctrine of sanctification, the way in which those who have already repented of their sins and who presently trust Christ for their righteousness for God are to bring the implications of that glorious gospel to bear on their everyday living. And this is Paul's chief concern as he writes to this dear congregation from Rome while he's under house arrest, chained to an imperial soldier and awaiting his trial before the emperor Nero. He assures them that despite these troubles and afflictions, he's rejoicing because the very bedrock foundation of his joy is unshakable. See, whether he lives or whether he dies, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, he is more satisfied by Christ than by all that this life can offer and by all that death can take. For him to live is Christ and to die is gain because it brings him even more of Christ. And because of such an estimation of the Lord and his own affections, Christ will be magnified in his body regardless of his circumstances. And so Paul rejoices. And so throughout the opening 26 verses of this letter, Paul is modeling for the Philippians precisely what it means to live a life that is driven by the gospel. And then finally, in chapter 1, verse 27, he turns from a sort of personal report to address the Philippians directly. And he issues his first command there in verse 27, a command that serves as a thesis statement for the rest of his comments throughout the book. He commands them, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in issuing that command, he lets the Philippians know that there is a direct link from the gospel to every aspect of the conduct of their daily living. So just like he has modeled for them in those opening 26 verses, they are to live gospel-driven lives. And right away, we learn what that means for the people of God in the midst of a hostile society, a situation not unlike our own. Paul tells them immediately that a life worthy of the gospel will mean an ever-strengthening unity of the church of God as they withstand the opposition of the unbelieving world. They are, verse 27, to stand firm in one spirit with one mind and to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And of course, in chapter 2, he issues that great call to unity on the basis of the comfort of Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to explain that that kind of unity can only be achieved when a congregation is marked by the kind of gospel-driven humility that regards others as more important than ourselves and the kind of large-hearted magnanimity that seeks the good of others as if it was our own good itself. And so then, in verses 5 to 11 in chapter 2, he provides us with the supreme example of that kind of humility. It was perfectly embodied in 
our Lord Jesus Christ as He left the glories of heaven and the worship of the saints and angels to be born as a man, submitting to all the restrictions of life as a human being, yet being without sin, and even to the shameful death on a cross in order to bear the wrath of His Father in the place of all those who would believe in Him. And on the basis of that humility-driven gospel, Paul calls us in verse 12 to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work within us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And we camped out on that classic text on the doctrine of sanctification for a couple of weeks, seeking to mine out the rich, practical theology that instructs us in our growth in grace. But then, last time, we saw that Paul applies that general exhortation to work out our salvation in a very particular way. In verse 14, he commands the Philippians to do all things without grumbling or disputing. You see, if the Philippians are going to have any hope of conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, if they're going to have any hope of holding their ground amidst the pressures of a hostile world, and of advancing the gospel into a hostile society. They must be unified. And there's no way that they're going to be able to experience that kind of gospel-driven unity while they continue to bicker and gripe and grumble and dispute with one another. And so last time, we looked in detail at this command to banish complaining from our lives. We observed the poor example of Israel in the wilderness And we learned how seriously God viewed their grumbling against His providence, so much so that the entire generation of those who were brought out of Egypt were not permitted to enter into the land of Canaan. They died, all of them, 20 years and older, in the wilderness. And so far from being some sort of harmless character flaw, we learned that complaining is a serious sin against our most gracious and sovereign God. And then we studied two reasons, two reasons that Paul gives in verses 15 and 16 for why we must eliminate complaining from our lives. And the first was for the sake of our witness, for the sake of our witness. You see, because of the corruption in the world, because of the hold that sin has on all the hearts of unredeemed men, complaining is everywhere. Paul says that we won't be the kind of people who stand out from the world, who show the world the way of holiness, who follow in the footsteps of Jesus, and who point to Him if we go on grumbling and disputing with one another. As followers of Christ, as children of our Heavenly Father who commands us to be holy for I am holy, we are to be blameless and innocent, verse 15, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine like stars in the night sky. We said that being blameless, you'll remember, refers to living in such a manner that those around us who are observing our behavior would never be able to advance any legitimate criticism when comparing our lives to the commands of Scripture. And we said that innocent translates a word that means literally unmixed, and it was used to describe wine that was undiluted, that wasn't watered down, and of unalloyed metal, of pure gold and pure silver. 
And so Paul is saying that our character must be of unmixed purity and innocence. See, not only are we to be blameless in our outward behavior, we're also to have integrity internally in our hearts. And then, as a combination of those, Paul says we're to be above reproach. Now, this is the the word that is used to speak of the Old Testament sacrifices, which were required to be unblemished, spotless, and without defect. And just as the Lord wouldn't receive blemished or imperfect animals from the children of Israel as sacrifices, so also must the living sacrifice of our entire lives be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And it's at this point that Paul anticipates an objection rising in the hearts of the people of God. Would you listen to that standard, some will say? Be unified. Be humble. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Have the same attitude as Christ. Work out your salvation. Do everything without complaining. Be blameless in your external behavior. Be pure and unmixed in your internal character and above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's impossible. Sure, it sounds good on paper. It sounds great to say all that. And sure, I'm striving for that. But to realize it, to put it into practice, that's just not realistic, Paul. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know a little something of what that imaginary objector is talking about. We hear that standard and we survey our own lives and we know ourselves And so we ask, how could I ever meet that standard of holiness that the Lord Jesus demands of a follower of Him? I might as well not even try. And in response to that anticipated objection, Paul writes chapter 2, verses 17 through 30 as an antidote to that. In those verses, he provides the Philippians and he provides us with three specific examples of how The gospel-driven life he's calling us to works itself out in practice. In verses 17 and 18, Paul holds out himself as an example. In verses 19 to 24, he presents young Timothy as one who is worthy to be imitated. And then in verses 25 to 30, he commends to them the exemplary service of Epaphroditus. Speaking of the importance of having examples to follow in the Christian life, Pastor John writes, perhaps the single most important aspect of spiritual leadership is having a godly example to emulate, godly life to emulate. Personal example illustrates biblical principles in action, showing how they should be lived out. When believers carefully consider God's standards in the light of their sins, shortcomings, weaknesses, and failures, those standards often seem impossible to achieve. Jesus is the believer's supreme example, but He was the sinless, perfect Son of God, and what was possible for Him can seem impossible for His followers. However, when believers see another Christian living out God's standards triumphantly, they're encouraged. In the 17th century, English Puritan Thomas Brooks summed that up just briefly by saying, example is the most powerful rhetoric. And so as Paul heaps up command upon command and instruction upon instruction, seemingly raising the bar of Christian faithfulness higher with every stroke of his pen, he recognizes that example is the most powerful form of rhetoric. 
And since he's seeking to aid the Philippians in their pursuit of living gospel-driven lives, Paul provides these three examples of the kind of life worthy of the gospel. In fact, you could title this section from verses 17 to 30, Three Gospel-Driven Ministers. What does it look like to lay your life down in the joyful service of Christ and His people in a manner that is worthy of the great gospel by which you have been saved? Of course, we look to Christ as our perfect example in all things, but then we also have these three disciples of Christ who were in Rome together as this letter was being written. We have Paul, the apostle. We have Timothy, a young pastor in training. And then we have Epaphroditus, a dedicated layman. And the wisdom of Paul in including all those examples from from Christ Himself to an apostle to a young pastor to a layman. It's just brilliant because it leaves nobody out. It lets us know that what's required of us and the principles to be gleaned from these verses are not just for the pastors and the missionaries and the super-Christians, but are relevant for all of God's people across the board, are relevant for you. Now, there's so much for us to learn in each of these three gospel-driven ministers that we won't get through it all this morning. In fact, today our focus will just be on the first example of gospel-driven service, the Apostle Paul in verses 17 and 18. So let's read chapter 2, verses 14 to 18 together, again, to get the context. Follow along with me. Chapter 2 from Philippians, verses 14 through 18. Paul writes, "'Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent.'" children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, if I could summarize the main message of our text in plain language, it's simply this. In verses 17 and 18, Paul tells the Philippians that even if his sacrificial, lifelong apostolic ministry in which he's labored on behalf of their faith in Christ and their progress in holiness, even if that sacrificial ministry should end in death at the hands of Nero, he's rejoicing. And he wants his rejoicing to be so shared with the Philippians that they wouldn't be discouraged by his death should it come but would be encouraged by the fact that Christ is being magnified in Paul's body, whether by life or by death. And since he knows that they're undergoing the same kind of opposition for the cause of Christ as they labor in sacrificial ministry for the progress and joy of one another's faith, he calls them to rejoice in the midst of that kind of persecution that will come and has come and to share their joy with him, just as he shared his joy with them. And so that's the the main thrust of the passage in a snapshot. But as we read, especially verse 17, it becomes immediately apparent that Paul hasn't chosen to speak in such plain language, in such literal language. You know, he simply could have said, even if it turns out that I die a martyr's death at the hands of the Romans in the service of your faith, I rejoice. But he doesn't do that. 
Instead, he employs figurative language to communicate a most precious truth in the most beautiful of ways. And the dominating imagery which Paul employs in this text is the imagery of priestly sacrifice, of priestly sacrifice. Look at the text of verse 17. Paul says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. Drink offering, sacrifice, service. Now that first phrase, being poured out as as a drink offering, it translates a single Greek word. It's the word spendemai. Sounds like being spent or expended. And this is is the word that the Old Testament uses to refer, I mean, it's the exclusive word to refer to the drink offering. Or some of you might recognize the old word libation, which would be offered to God in the tabernacle in the temple. So we'll speak more about that word a bit later, but suffice it to say for now that Paul also uses that word. The the only other time it's used in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 4, 6, where he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, aside from this word which refers to a drink offering, he also speaks of the sacrifice and service of your faith. Sacrifice is the Greek word thusia. It's the normal word for an animal being offered up to God in temple worship. Luke uses it of Joseph and Mary's sacrifice on behalf of Jesus, their, their firstborn son, in Luke chapter 2, verse 24, where they, they sacrificed the two turtle doves, according to the Jewish law. And service is the word liturgia, which is where we get the English terms liturgy or liturgical, words that have to do with religious service. And while it's used to describe all kinds of public service in the Greek world, it had particular reference to the service of the priests and Levites in the temple of the Lord. And Luke uses this word in chapter 1, verse 23, at the time of Zacharias' priestly service. Speaking, he says, when when Zacharias' priestly service had ended. This is this word. And then even a few verses earlier in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul uses the language of blamelessness and being above reproach, or another translation would be unblemished. And I've already just briefly mentioned earlier that that that's referring to the standard of the sacrifices that Israel was to offer to the Lord. So, So this passage is really dominated by the imagery of sacrifice. So what's Paul's point here? What are we to make of this dominating imagery? Well, turn with me to the passage that Warren read, back to Romans chapter 15. We looked at this text towards the end of our sermon last time in verses 14 to 16, and I think it's worth going there again because it just brings a lot of clarity regarding this imagery of sacrifice and priestly service and what that meant for Paul. Romans chapter 15, and I'm going to start in verse 15. Paul says to the Romans, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, the imagery of sacrifice and priestly service dominates this passage as well. Paul says he's a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And that word minister isn't the normal word that you would see in the New Testament for minister, which is diakonos, from which we get deacon. It's the word liturgos, which is in the same family of words as liturgia back in our text in Philippians 2.17. 
And then he refers to himself as ministering as a priest. And then he speaks here of his offering of the Gentiles, which he hopes to offer to God as a sanctified, acceptable sacrifice. So can you see the light that this sheds on his language in Philippians 2? Paul says that he views his entire apostolic ministry of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles as an offering to God of a spiritual sacrifice. Just as a priest under the Mosaic Covenant would bring a lamb or a bull or a ram as an offering to Yahweh, and just as that faithful priest would ensure that it was an animal that was without defect and worthy of being sacrificed to a holy God, Paul views the Gentiles themselves as his sacrificial offering. And so if he's going to be a a faithful priest, so to speak, he's going to labor diligently. He's going to do everything that he can to ensure that his offering is acceptable. He's going to give his life to aiding the sanctification of the Philippians because he wants his sacrifice to be holy unto the Lord. And so... That explains his language in chapter 2, verse 16. Do all things without grumbling or or disputing so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. So if you would go on working out your salvation with fear and trembling, my dear Philippians, if you would go on pressing on in the fight for holiness, all my running and all my toiling will not be in vain. Because on the day when I will give an account to the Lord Jesus for the stewardship of the sheep whom He has entrusted into my care, I will be able to boast in Christ that my offering was truly sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful picture of a life of gospel-driven Christian service to the people of God. So now that we've seen the general way in which Paul is using this wonderful imagery of priestly service in relation to his own ministry on behalf of the Philippians' holiness. Let's look at the metaphor more specifically. Go back to verse 17. Paul says, But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Now, both the Jews and those who were familiar with the Old Testament sacrifices as well as those who had been converted to Christ out of a life of paganism, would have been very familiar with the concept of a drink offering. See, after a priest would place an animal on an altar and burn it in an act of worship, he would take wine and sometimes even water or honey and pour it out either on the burning sacrifice itself or alongside it on the ground. And the the heat of the altar would cause the liquid to evaporate and the steam would rise in the air and was supposed to be a a soothing aroma to the deity that was being worshipped. And we can observe a version of that in the prescriptions for Israel's sacrifices. If you turn with me to Numbers chapter 15, book of Numbers chapter 15, in this text, the Lord directs Moses to instruct the people regarding the kinds of sacrifices they'll offer when they enter the land of Canaan. And in Numbers... Chapter 15, verse 8, God says through Moses, When you prepare a bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or for peace offerings to the Lord, then you shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-half a hin of oil. 
And you shall offer as the drink offering one half a hin of wine as an offering by fire, as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And so the faithful worshiper of Yahweh was to slaughter a bull and burn it on the altar. But the sacrifice of that bull was not complete unless it was sprinkled with the flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, as well as a half of a gallon of wine poured out as a drink offering. The drink offering was what capped and completed the sacrifice to God. And that's an important thing to catch. It capped and it completed the sacrifice. The sacrifice was incomplete without it. So how does that imagery transfer to Paul's point? Paul has said that the entirety of his apostolic life of ministry, in which he has been running and toiling and laboring, verse 16, for the progress and joy of the Philippians' faith, all of his labors in the ministry are like the labors of a priest endeavoring to offer a holy sacrifice to God. And now, as he waits under house arrest to stand trial before Nero to find out if the emperor is going to allow him to live or will sentence him to execution, he says that if indeed this sacrificial ministry will end in his martyrdom, he won't be discouraged. He'll rejoice because his death in the service of Christ and for the sake of the Philippians' progress in holiness will be to him the drink offering that completes the sacrificial offering of his entire ministry. He'll rejoice because his martyrdom will, would be a fitting climax of all of his apostolic labors. If one thing remains to make Paul's sacrifice of the Philippians perfectly acceptable, he's willing that, that the sacrifice of his own life should be that one thing. He's willing to follow his Lord in becoming, as it says in chapter 2, verse 8, obedient to the point of death. It's as if he says, oh, my dear Philippians, if the Lord has decreed that my life be poured out as that drink offering that seals and sanctifies the offering of your holy living so that you become an acceptable sacrifice unto God. I'm not made sorrowful by my death. I rejoice. My life could not be better spent. It could not be better sacrificed than in the cause of your holiness, which abounds to the glory of God. And you can't detect a hint of backwardness in those words. Paul's attitude in this toilsome labor of the priestly ministry of the gospel is not one of, of begrudging obedience and miserable duty. Paul's not like the priest of Malachi's day who said of the priestly service of, of offering sacrifices to Yahweh, Malachi 1.13, my how tiresome it is, and who the text says who disdainfully sniff at it, like, ugh. No, he's rejoicing. He's saying, if my blood must be spilled so that God will get what he is worthy of in your lives then I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. What greater privilege can there be to lay down my life to ensure that God could have what He desires? You see, Paul understood that the greatest sacrifice brings the greatest joy. He understood what Peter and John and the apostles understood in Acts 5, who after being flogged for preaching the name of Jesus, the text says, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. This was the man 
who said in Acts chapter 20, 24, but I do not consider my life as of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And who said in Acts 21, 13, I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This was the man who, while chained 18 inches away from a Roman soldier, could exclaim from the depths of his souls, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I count all things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul knew that the greatest sacrifice for Christ brings the greatest fellowship with Christ. And he yearned to know the sweet fellowship to be had with Christ as one who would share in his sufferings, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And so he says to the Philippians, don't be discouraged by my imprisonment. Don't feel defeated at the prospect of my martyrdom. Don't sink into despondency if I have to die for my testimony for Christ. I'm rejoicing and I share my joy with all of you. The gospel has advanced because of my imprisonment. Haven't I told you that? Chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Well, what good reason is there to think that the gospel won't advance under the hand of our sovereign God as a result of my martyrdom? But not only is he encouraging them to rejoice in his circumstances, he's calling them to imitate his example of sacrificial service and then to rejoice in whatever persecution they may face because of it. That's verse 18. He says, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. See, Paul is not unaware of the opposition that the Philippians were facing. That's why he writes to them in chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. He says, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. See, they're experiencing the same conflict, the same opposition and persecution which comes as a result of their commitment to Christ. And Paul is stirring them up to follow in his footsteps as he follows in the footsteps of Christ. As they lay their lives down for one another in sacrificial service for the advancement of each other's faith. And as they risk their worldly comforts for the sake of preaching the gospel to the lost world around them, Paul exhorts them to labor with joy because the greatest sacrifice for Christ brings the greatest fellowship with Christ. And oh, I hope that even as you've been listening, the Holy Spirit has already begun to press this text upon your conscience so that you can see how deeply and how thoroughly it applies to your own lives. And the first line of application I can draw from this text is to aim Paul's imperative directly at you. We are to rejoice in the midst of persecution. We are to rejoice in the midst of persecution. If we can learn one thing, friends, from the political events that have transpired in this last week, it's, it's that it's plain that the gospel that we believe and the Word that we live by and the Lord that we serve are no less subversive and antithetical to our world than they were to the Philippians' world. 
It has just been reaffirmed loud and clear for us that our society is going to give us plenty of opportunities to show the world that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. To show that we count all things as loss for the sake of the surpassing value of knowing Him. To show that He is more satisfying than all that life can offer and all that death can take. Because it's going to force us, our society is going to force us to choose between faithfulness to the Lord and the worldly comforts that we've grown accustomed to. As we simply seek to follow the Lord Jesus and entrusting His Word, faithfully proclaiming His gospel, opposition is going to come. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us plainly that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so when it comes, don't be surprised by the fiery trial as though something strange were happening to you. Stand firm and rejoice because the Apostle Paul has taught us that the greatest sacrifice for Christ brings the greatest fellowship with Christ. And because of that, he was ready to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ and lay his life down for his friends. And along with him, If we live to see the sort of persecution that Paul and the Philippians saw, if we live to face the threat of the loss of our jobs or the loss of our property or even imprisonment or even the threat of death itself, that we will count it a privilege to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of our entire life lived as a sanctified offering to God. But you know, sometimes the idea of suffering in those, what would you call them, grandiose sort of ways, like being fired or put in prison or or even dying for the sake of the gospel, sometimes that can almost seem easier to us than smaller forms of self-denial. And that's because those forms of, bigger forms of persecution tend to have a romanticized flavor to them, don't they? You know, we think of such things as acts of heroism, and they are. But for some of us, there's even sort of an attraction because of that to suffer in those ways because, you know, we like being the hero. We like the spotlight that will come upon us for our dedication and our commitment. But if we really want to follow the footsteps of the Apostle Paul as he follows Christ, if we really want to have the implications of this passage take root in our hearts, We need to remember that Paul was not only willing to die once for his ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles, but that he was willing to die daily for the sake of the growth of the people of God. That is precisely what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I die daily. Romans 8, 36. For your sakes we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Acts 20, 23, the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. And that kind of devotion from Paul doesn't just happen. I'm sure there were days when he woke up and he asked himself if he really wanted to get arrested again, to get beaten again, to get stoned again. Five times, 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, dangers from rivers, from robbers, from Jews, from Gentiles, dangers in the city, in the wilderness, and on the sea, labor, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, 
cold and exposure. I'm sure there were mornings when he asked himself if it was all worth it. But if he ever felt like giving up, even for a split second, he remembered that the joy to be had in fellowship with Christ as a sharer in his sufferings was so satisfying that he joyfully took up his cross daily, died to himself daily, and followed that glorious Savior. And friends, this is the kind of joyful self-denial that must characterize your life. You need to wake up every morning and bring your mind under subjection under the Word of God. You need to make a conscious decision by the grace of God and because of the delightfulness of the glory of Christ that you are going to die to yourself for the sake of following after Christ and for serving His people. That you are going to lay yourself on the altar and by the mercies of God to present your body and your mind and your time and your energy as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. One preacher asked, do I have the passion that my life shall be the most perfect sacrifice that the grace of God can make it? We need to ask that question of ourselves. Yes, there may be things according to your fleshly desires that you would rather invest yourselves in. Yes, there may be comforts and lawful pleasures that may be permissible for you to enjoy. But rather than asking what's wrong with it, you need to ask what benefit will it bring? How will I live my life? How will I use my time, my money, my energy to contribute to my own pursuit of holiness and to the sanctification of God's people and to the glory of God Himself? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Where? Where you follow somebody who's carrying a cross to Golgotha, to death, to die to self every day. How can we pour our lives out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of those whom God has brought under our influence and into our lives. You husbands, you know that just as Christ gave Himself up for His bride, the church, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, in the same way your dear bride has been entrusted to you by God as His stewardship, so that as you nourish her and cherish her, washing her, as it were, with the sanctifying Word of God, at the end of your life you will present her as an acceptable offering unto God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In what ways, husbands, are you pouring out your lives upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of your wives? Are you setting aside time to be in the Word with them, to pray with them, to disciple them, and to lead them? You mothers, Every influential voice in our society screams at you to refuse to be marginalized and to be oppressed and to be burdened by the, the, the keeping of a house, by serving your husband and by caring for your children. You need to fulfill your own potential, pursue your own career, pursue your own identity, put the children in the daycare, hire a maid, assert yourself, express yourself. These are lies from the forked tongue of Satan himself. 
While the world screams for you to sacrifice your family on the altar of your self-actualization, the Word of God calls for you to pour yourself out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of your children and of your family. Every moment that you're home with them, nurturing them, modeling for them what it means to be a woman according to the Scriptures, and taking those opportunities to direct their hearts to the Word of God and to the gospel, you are laboring for their progress and joy in the faith. And you are engaging in something of greater significance than any female CEO or politician has ever dreamed of. And fathers, I know that there are days when you come home from work and you are tired, but your kids are there and they're observing in you what it means to be a man of God. And while there are weekday evenings when you'd really like to watch the game or maybe just take a little nap or Saturday mornings when you'd really like to sleep in, you need to carry yourself up onto the altar of God and die to your own interests. And you need to order your family in a thousand different ways so as to labor for your children's faith in Christ and their growth in holiness. And finally, what I think is the, the primary application of this text to all of us here in the, this morning, whether we're husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, singles, grandparents, or whatever, we are all part of the family of God. We are all members of the body of Christ, of the church. And dear friends, we need to know something of the Spirit that animated the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul as we lay down our lives to minister to one another in the body of Christ, we need to know something of the Spirit that caused Paul to cry out in Galatians 4.19, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ be fully formed in you. We cannot, Grace Life, we cannot play church. We cannot just get dressed up on Sunday morning and smile and greet one another politely and endure a sermon or two, and then just retreat to our own separate lives throughout the week. We need to be asking ourselves day by day how we can pour out our very life's blood upon the sacrifice and service of the brothers and sisters of Grace Community Church and the brothers and sisters of Grace Life that are here with you in this room this morning. How can I give myself for the progress and joy in the faith of my fellow believers? What can I do to stir up my Christian friends to love and to good deeds? There are real needs in this congregation, my friends, and there are real needs in this fellowship group. There are people who are hurting financially, suffering physically. There are people who would love to come to a Bible study or even come to Grace Life on Sunday mornings, but who need rides. There are people who are moving who need to have help packing and loading and unpacking and unloading and 10,000 other needs. And there are people who are battling with sin, people who are struggling in their walk with the Lord and who need encouragement and fellowship and accountability. There are people who need to know that there are faithful brothers and sisters praying for them, interceding for them on their behalf before the throne of grace. We need to be in Bible studies, friends. I'm going to say this until it all happens. We need to be in Bible studies in each other's lives, in small groups, 
I know that your schedules are crazy and that everybody's busy and that it's sometimes uncomfortable to share certain aspects of your lives with one another, to share your struggles with one another. But we need to die to our comforts and our preferences and our selfishness and offer ourselves up upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of our fellow Christians and to do it joyfully, gladly willing to spend and be expended for the souls of our brothers and sisters. To have the attitude of the Apostle Paul that your life could not be better spent, that each day of your life could not be better sacrificed than in the course of advancing the holiness of God's people, which abounds to His glory, so that on that day, it can be presented to him something that he is worthy of receiving. Why? Why should we do that with gladness and joy? Because we know that the greatest sacrifice for Christ brings the greatest fellowship with Christ and that the surpassing value of knowing and loving and serving and enjoying him is worth suffering the loss of all things and counting them but rubbish so that we may gain Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for this example, this gospel-driven minister, the Apostle Paul. And though the standard, even of one who is a man weak as ourselves, who is not one without sin, even before that, great standard, we confess that we fall short even of Him, let alone what you, what you require. And as we observe His example, we wonder, how can we live near a man like this? How can we be faithful? We hear these words, and I, along with my brothers and sisters, hang my head in shame at how we fall short of even a human standard. But oh, we come to you needy and begging for your grace to strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit to, to live and think and feel and worship and meet and talk and a thousand other things in a way that is befitting and worthy of the gospel. We desire the kind of grace operative in our lives that was operative in the Apostle Paul's life. We desire to spend and be expended at the very bottom of our affections, that is our desire, even though the flesh may be weak. But subdue the flesh, we ask, O Holy Spirit, Sovereign Lord, and cause us to be more purely sanctified so that at the end of our lives, we might offer to you a life acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that you may be pleased and that we may enter into the joy of our Master who has told us, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, cause us to minister to one another in this group, Father. Banish all sorts of and pretensions of playing church and make this people one who is in the lives of each other. Equip me and Phil and the other leaders in Grace Life to, to lead there by example. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.